In many ways, Howard Hughes was a detestable character. He wielded his money and power to manipulate the democratic process. He treated women like property. He was an unabashed racist. He didn't seem to have an artistic bone in his body, yet he arrogantly declared himself a movie director. He was an irrational red-baiter who fired numerous alleged communists working for his movie company. Despite his wealth, Hughes was not a philanthropist. The money he did give to charities and causes usually had a cynical political motive behind it. For the most part, Hughes saw his fellow human beings as pieces on a chessboard to be moved here and there to suit his needs. He liked peas. But while I'm not a big fan, I do find Hughes fascinating. He was smart, some say genius, and largely self-educated. He was an important aviation innovator, despite having no formal training in aerodynamics. His flying boat was an incredible achievement, even if it flew only once. He was a maverick. He epitomized the phrase rugged individualist. He never ran with the pack, and he didn't back down from a fight. He was a rich man who had little interest in expensive clothes, cars, or houses. He wined and dined beautiful actresses, then drove them home in a beat-up Chevrolet. Hughes blew hundreds of millions of dollars, but primarily in pursuit of his passions, airplanes, movies, and later casinos. Hughes also was a tragic figure. His gradual descent into drug addiction, germ phobia, paranoia, seclusion, and obsessive-compulsive disorder all steadily worsening while doctors toyed with his drug intake and aides sat on their hands, is one of the saddest stories of the 20th century. Indeed, Hughes was the last private man, as Joan Didion called him, in 1967, while he was living in the penthouse of the Desert Inn Hotel in Las Vegas, with only a handful of personal aides granted access to his suite. Hughes' insistence on total privacy in the final years of his life is an endlessly intriguing topic. People just want to know what the hell was happening up there. Did he really keep his urine in jars? Yes. Were his fingernails really six inches long? No. Is it true that his top Las Vegas executive, Bob Mayhew, never spoke with his boss in person? Yes. Is it true that he snuck out of the hotel a few times to visit a prostitute in rural Nevada? No. Did he really watch the same movie, Ice Station Zebra, over and over? Yes. A whole book could be written just confirming and debunking the legends generated by his privacy obsession. I'm also fascinated by Hughes's impact on Las Vegas. Today, more than 30 years after his death, his name has an uncanny way of popping up in conversation. Everybody in Las Vegas, it seems, knows somebody who worked for Hughes in some way, shape, or form. His former employees are still scattered across the city, and most of them love to talk about the man, even if they never met him. Soon after I started working on this book, my mom put me in touch with her neighbor, 88-year-old Russ Hudson, who said he played golf with Hughes in the early 50s. Hudson proudly showed me the pair of red cowboy boots he wore while playing with Hughes and said that Hughes admired. In his final years, Hudson wore gloves much of the time as an homage of sorts to Hughes's fear of germs. I also sat down with Bob McCaffrey, a former design engineer for Hughes Helicopter Company who regularly delivers public lectures about Hughes. McCaffrey campaigned successfully in the 1980s to save Hughes's flying boat from being dismantled and distributed to nine different museums. Then, with the plane facing eviction from Long Beach, California, he campaigned to bring it to Las Vegas. He identified a spot at the south end of the Strip where the giant plane could be put on display. 
Alas, Las Vegas lost out to a bid from the Evergreen Aviation Museum in McMinnville, Oregon, 40 miles south of Portland, where the flying boat sits today. Toward the end of my research, I interviewed Linda Gray, a longtime Las Vegan who was married to the late Dick Gray, Hughes's personal attorney in the late 60s. Linda told me about Hughes calling her husband in the middle of the night. Hughes would tell him to have his wife leave the room so they could speak privately. Richard would rustle the bed covers to suggest her departure, but in truth she would remain by his side while her husband discussed whatever was on Hughes's mind at 3 a.m. After Hughes died and the Mormon will came to light, memos written by Hughes in Linda's possession were used to compare with the handwriting of the will to determine its legitimacy. These are just three of the many people who have Howard Hughes on the brain. There is no shortage of books about the man. Beside my desk, published works about Hughes fill an entire shelf, and all of them were useful in the preparation of this book. Seemingly every aspect of his life, as secret as it was, has been examined in print, including Hughes's activities in Las Vegas. Three books focus on his eventful four-year sequestration on the top floor of the Desert Inn, while a few others contain extensive material on Hughes's Las Vegas years. But, for all the reams of paper devoted to the Hughes-Vegas connection, there hasn't been a book that explores the long-term impact Hughes had on America's fastest-growing city and the people living there. This book is an attempt to do that.